Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great day, wherever you may be at the moment. I'm delighted to be joined by Ben, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Evolve Ed Technologies. Now, Evolve Ed is an ad tech platform and learning community. Benjamin is a very experienced product manager, working for an array of companies over the last number of years, including Bloomberg. Also, he's a speaker at Product School, providing students with industry insights based on his experience as a product manager and established technology companies in New York and across a range of industries. So today I'm delighted to, looking forward to it also, to learning about product development and product experience from Ben. So we're going to talk all about how do you get into product design, what does a good product mean, and what do you advise in terms of a startup and building a new product, how would you recommend to make your product stand out in the current environment, and also we'll talk a bit about what the future holds. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Ken. Really happy to be here. Excited about this conversation. Thank you. And I know it's your first time doing a podcast interview, so great to have you on board. So I always start. Listen, would you mind just telling our audience a bit about you and your background? So I actually graduated from college with a degree in geography, and then I went on to grad school to get a master's in urban planning. So neither of those two degrees really seems like they have much in common with the field of product management, especially digital product management. Um, But what I have found is that people who are product managers today, there was no formal training in the past to actually learn this field. So people come to it with a really wide range of different backgrounds. And the most important skills are not necessarily technical skills. They are more human skills, understanding psychology to some extent, because that plays a major role in making products that are effective for the way that people actually use and understand them. So my background as a geographer and as an urban planner aren't especially relevant on paper, but the work that you do in those sorts of environments, engaging with customers and potentially customers and users of your platform or product or whatever it is that you're building, those are universal. So wherever you may have found that experience, or even if that's just kind of the way that a person is, uh, approaches problems in the world. That's a really good start. So that is where I began. I moved into the tech industry not that long after graduating with my degree in urban planning. For a while, I was a GIS analyst. So I made digital maps for engineering firms. And that was an interesting experience for me because that was kind of the pathway from a much more urban planning-centric career into a more technical field. Okay, the more I did of that, the more I found it interesting. So I looked for other opportunities to do digital technical work. That also coincided with the initial internet boom around the year 2000, 2001 or so. And so there was a tremendous amount of energy and discussion about like the coming internet age. So that really piqued my interest as well. And those things combined, I decided at some point I would just move fully into the technical industry. Even at that time, though, product management as a discipline hadn't really been defined. So Many people were 
UX designers, even that was relatively fresh at, at that time. So most people were called webmasters at the time. Okay. Um, so I was a webmaster. I did side work and I started getting into the industry just by building websites on my own as freelance outside of my normal day job. Eventually, I landed a position in a tech startup in New York City. That role was as an IT help kind of guy. Like I fixed computers for the tech company. But before too long, they needed, as many startups do, someone to fill additional roles. They asked me if I'd be interested in doing product management. And of course, like that was the area I had wanted to get into for a while. I started doing that by just wireframing user interfaces for our web application and then expanded and, and grew from there. Awesome. Uh, great, Ben. That's very, very interesting. And I actually, I've interviewed a lot of people where they've, they've changed careers in life and it's interesting, but it's always had such great value having that other career and that experience and how that helped them in, in you know, the next career that they moved into. And listen to you about the planning and design is quite interesting. Okay, so getting on to, you know, product, what does a good product mean to you? I tend to focus on web community products. So if you say product in a pretty generic sense, you could mean anything from a mm. physical object like a tool or a household appliance to software, which is, of course, the area that I work in. So a product is usually an application accessed via mobile device or web browser in my specific usage context. And that would be something, everything from a social network to an application that, to a game, anything that is kind of encapsulated within itself and then is something that is delivered to customers and, and with which they interact. So I've spent a lot of time building web platforms as products, things like online tools for customer service. When I was at Bloomberg, where I worked for six years, my primary product was a website for customers to come and pay their bills, arrange different services, sign up for subscriptions, submit support tickets. So that was a product in the sense that it was an interface for people to maintain customer support and other back office functionality with Bloomberg services. I focused much of my work also on online education tools. So in those cases, the product is a mixture of the technology itself and the community of people that engage with one another and with the company using that technology platform. Okay, interesting. Actually, on that point, because I know now you're working in the ed tech space at the moment, and that's what you reference, I guess. So how do you go about you know, building that product? I mean, in terms of advising the company, where do you start? Um, it does much? depend. Yeah, it depends a lot on where it begins. So many times coming into an organization, you'll inherit or take ownership of an existing product. And then the, the task is to maintain that, expand it, improve it, get more customers, maybe take it in new directions. So that's interesting as well, but many people don't love that because there's so much legacy. If you talk to programmers, for example, they generally hate legacy code. However, the previous team of programmers envisioned a product or some code, and they built it in that specific way. Now, for them, it was probably right. But then when you bring new programmers on, their minds work a little differently. Their experiences have shown them different things. So the way that they would design and build something is going to differ. A lot of programmers then really prefer to start from scratch. And if you work with programmers, you also have to kind of check that impulse a lot because that's usually going to be their first answer. Let's throw everything away and do it my way. In product yes. management, like you also have that temptation. You can say, well, we understand the fundamental problem that they were trying to address. 
And we see what they built to try to address that problem. They don't seem to match up from my perspective. So let's just throw it out and start again. That feels clean in some ways, but it's very risky in other ways. You have to maintain momentum. If you have users, if you have hundreds of users or thousands of users, they tend to be familiar with the way something works. And you need to really carefully consider whether fundamentally changing it is going to alienate more customers than it will entice new ones to join. So I generally see that cost as being almost too much to take. So my approach with an inherited product is usually to start with what you have and then incrementally modify it. And that is a more general principle as well. You want to build something in small increments. You want to have a strategy, like where do we want to be in a year or two years and what features and what expectations should we have for that time frame? But getting there isn't necessarily a linear process. It's really important to engage very closely with the people who are using your product to understand like how they see it and what value it brings to them. So the best approach, the one that I've been teaching members of my team now is to do incremental testing. So we know we want to have this grand feature and it has a lot of functionality, but we don't want to wait until we've built all of that before delivering it to our customers. We know through our research, through our experience that that will be valuable to customers, but this is a different set of customers than we've ever worked with before. And that's true regardless of where you are. It's always going to be a slightly different community than anyone you've worked with before. So that means the expectation should be that something is going to be different. They aren't going to be exactly the same, thus not going to need exactly the same product to serve what they want to accomplish. So with the larger goal in mind, could be six months goal or, or longer, we break it down into small pieces. And we try to build and deliver a small increment at a time, put that in front of our customers, and then gauge their usage of it. We collect data based on how they actually use it, based on built-in mechanisms, including things like Google Analytics and other ways of measuring customer engagement with software. And then we also talk to them on a regular basis to see how they understand it in their own minds. So those two things are sometimes opposed to one another, like how they understand it and how they actually use it. And a good example of that, I think, is the way that Netflix allows people to rate the, uh, the videos that they've watched. Yeah, they used yeah. to have a kind of a more formalized rating system that was like five-star rating system. They found that people were somewhat aspirational. Like they rated things more highly when they thought they were supposed to think of them as good media, like artistic media. But then that didn't mirror that precisely with what they watched. They watched you know, a lot more lowbrow content and that's where their interests really lied. So they, from that observation, they realized like the rating system wasn't all that valuable. It would be better to simplify that and just ask at the end of a title, did they like it? Thumbs up or did they not like it? Thumbs down. And that provided more valuable data for them to use in their recommendation engine saying like, I think this person's going to actually like this rather than yes, almost a yes, performative yes. rating where they rate it based on what they think society wants them to think. Yeah. So would you say Netflix is like a good example of a product well built and well managed? It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. And look at how they've grown over the years. Like they have a good strategy and they have a good incremental approach too, because when they started their business, it was very different from what it is today. I presume, although I don't know for sure, that they envisioned this would be something they would build out over time, like an actual studio producing content. But when they began, they shipped you DVDs via mail. And I still remember that subscription. And then, you know, they moved to delivery via video. So it was a technological shift there. 
And then it was a business practice shift starting to produce their own content. They may have come to that conclusion because of external forces, right? As they became more powerful and dominant in the marketplace, I think other studios were hesitant to license their content to them because they saw that they were emerging as a competitor. So Netflix had to had to run quickly to start producing enough content of their own that even if they lost licensing to other studios' content, they would still have things that were desirable to their customers. So now they're a huge powerhouse in that regard. And watching the evolution of them as a company and the products that they provided is really quite fascinating. Ah, yes. I mean, it's incredible business. And listen, I have a lot of questions. Listen to what you're saying now. It's very interesting going back to because I do work with some startups also. And I mean, from that day one, you know, even just going about, you know, you say you talk to your customers, like, like that's obviously a key requirement in terms of what features you build. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like these research surveys, pick up the phone? How do you reach out to these customers, find them? My practice is to do it in a more informal way. I mean, re- surveys certainly have their place. And I think in a larger organization, you can formalize those things more. The context I'm working in right now, we are a startup. We've only been in operation for a few months now. So our methodology is, Our initial outreach was to people that we were already connected with in a wide variety of different circles. Because I've worked at many companies in many different industries, my co-founder, same situation, and he has a little bit of a different background in his career than I do. So that is a different community. It gives us a much broader reach of people we can talk to and different experiences that we can learn from. But our approach has been to leverage those contacts and then use that to broaden our reach. So we're tightly connected with Vassar College, which is where I went for my undergrad. And from there, we've worked very closely with current students, faculty members, and other administrators who run different educational programs. Like so many colleges right now, they're working through the process of figuring out how to deliver their learning materials and experiences more and more digitally. Because they shut down you know, in-campus instruction and all the students went home and worked remotely back in the spring. So they finished off half of their semester through this process, and they learned a great deal from that. In working closely with those people, we've also learned a lot because our Evolve Ed project is remote online from the start. Like There was never any intention that this would be a platform that would facilitate in-person classroom meetings. It was very lucky for us, yes. And so we had a lot of experience working on these problems, but... Then when we came into the context of Vassar College students and their academic programs and how they were addressing similar problems, we just learned so much from them. And we've done the same with some other organizations. We've connected with organizations that actually, because of the lockdown and the school shutdowns across the US and Canada, several nonprofits, probably many in fact, have sprung up to provide additional tutoring to students in schools in different parts of the country. And so we've worked closely with them as well to observe their process for how they're trying to solve these problems and collaborate where we can, which is in many different places. Brilliant. Uh, I can see communication, collaboration, feedback, obviously key traits of good product management from what I understand. It really is. And there's, there's counterexamples too. Mm. If you studied agile project management, right. like we use that. We use that because I've used that in so many different companies. That came as a response to the waterfall approach in which someone would spend an inordinate amount of time designing really precise specifications. And then that would go to software developers and they would build exactly to those specifications. I was once in a situation where we delivered specifications to a team. The team was overseas. 
They spent a great deal of time working on it. We didn't know what they were doing day to day. They came back at the end and they're like, okay, here's the software built exactly to your specifications. By the way, we noticed that your specifications had an error in them and it doesn't work, but we built it to exactly oh, match your gosh. specifications. <laughs> they could have told us that months earlier and everyone could have saved time. And all that money and energy was, well, not all of it, but a great deal of it was wasted because of that communication error or decision or you know expectation. So what a shame that was. The only good thing I guess to say, say about it is that we learned a lesson from that process. You learned, you learned the hard way, don't you? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> but actually, you know, also, I mean, you, you, you say you're a startup and you approach and you've got loads of great ideas around products. I want to put all these features on it. I want to build this, you know, all this tech. But then you also right. have to, okay, I have this budget. I want to build a POC. Do I take the approach, oh, I just build something very simple, POC now, and, and listen, I'm going to rebuild it in any case in the future, or do I kind of get a balance? I mean, what's your thoughts on you know, that whole just approach? Idea? Yeah, those different approaches, I would say, will be relevant in different circumstances. For okay. us, our budget is very tight, so we spend less time designing and more time building and even testing with small increments. We do have confidence that what we're working on right now is valuable because we have connected with several of our user communities and okay. discussed with them. And in fact, some of them have said, you know, I really need a feature that does X. And if that feature actually fits in with our longer term plan, maybe we'll reprioritize it to make it happen sooner because we do want to deliver that useful value to customers as soon as we can. And with the intention that that will gradually build up our user base, right? And that is our major goal. In order to be successful, we have to increase our user base quickly and then start to monetize based on that. And actually, that's a good point you mentioned about testing. So, do, I mean, how much testing do you do before you say, oh, listen, let's get this product out there and get people using it, let them test it? Or do you say, no, we have to thoroughly test this, make sure everything's perfect before we get it out there? What's your opinion on this? We're somewhere in the middle there. Okay. You know, when working for a major financial company, you need to do extensive testing. You can have bugs. And you also need to do internal testing just to make sure that the user experience works and that it makes sense to potential customers. So in those cases, you want to invest heavily in that. In our scenario, it is we've actually released features in kind of a dev environment. And we've invited certain customers to participate in that development environment and do testing for us there. The testing we need to do really is user acceptance testing. Does it make sense for them? Does it solve the problems that they have? So much of our effort is trying to understand what those problems are and then developing something that addresses them. Customers are often very enthusiastic about saying, I need this solution, but it's really risky to just take a solution that someone else has come up with and, and implement that. You know, they're in a different context. We have many customers. We can't build something that works perfectly for one customer but is detrimental to the rest. So it's on us to balance those different issues, to look at, they may say to us, I need this solution. It's really important for us to look through that and say, well, what is the problem that you are trying to solve with this solution? And then we analyze that problem and see if that is the solution that works best for us and for our larger community, or if there's some other solution that addresses their needs as well as works within the, the greater context. Yeah, very interesting, uh, Ben. And, you know, in terms of the number of features that you put into the initial rollout or design, 
do you keep do you, do you when you did like your your approach with Evolve Ed? Was it literally one or two features focus on that and then build from there? What we had an initial conception of like what the minimum viable product would be. Okay. And that was a collection of features. And some of them were pretty sizable to implement. So our initial build was a number of different features. Like we needed to be, have users be able to create accounts. They needed to be able to set themselves as a, an expert, which means a tutor, so that they can be the one who hosts classes. Mm. We needed a calendaring system so that a student could see when a tutor was free and suggest or request a time that they could work together. And we needed a built-in in-browser video chat. So those are pretty sizable features, each one of them. But we thought that they were all needed together in one combined suite of tools for us to really get to that initial plateau. And then after that, other features we, we ruled out in our initial release, things that are pretty essential to long-term business, like an automated payment platform. We haven't released that yet, although that is in our roadmap for later this year. The idea being, we can start and we can test whether our video actually works. We can test whether creating an account works and search and discovery of tutors works and the calendaring system. And we don't need in our initial iteration for customers to actually do this fully as a paying gig. We know it'll take some time for them to build up their audiences. So we figure, just like we need that time to build up our user base, initial tutors can come on our site and they can start building their presence. And then over time, that'll snowball and then they'll have enough users that an actual payment platform will be valuable to them. When they first come on board and they have a handful of users and they're just using the platform you know, occasionally, it's not core to their economic survival at this point in time. So they're really just testing it out, same, same as we are, and building their brand and, and gradually building their business. They wouldn't get as much value from a payment platform now when, say, for example, they do one student a week. But over time, if they're doing 10 or 20 students a week, then it's very valuable. And, and so we've coordinated our, our development of that feature with our, stu- with our customers when it will be most valuable for them, as well as with our time frame, like when we are actually able with our development resources to build that feature. Actually, you mentioned a good point there about the whole revenue model. At what stage do you look to build in a revenue model? Do you like look immediately or do you think go free first, get as many people on the platform and then start looking to make money? What are your thoughts on this area? If you look at different business models, there are some, especially ones that are well capitalized, that have received mm. venture capital, where they use that money to build their user base as quickly as possible. And they don't try to produce any revenue for a while. Okay. It's interesting, like I think when Facebook first launched, they had a number of ideas for building revenue but they received such a huge investment from venture capitals that they realized they didn't need to do that. At the same time, they realized like the methods that they had in mind for producing income would be off-putting to customers. So they delayed that until later. And then once customers were thoroughly hooked and they introduced their advertising platform, they did a better job because the advertising platform was much more sophisticated. And they also had users who at that point really didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So they, they wouldn't have left just right. because of the introduction of that. For us, our model is pretty different. And in fact, it is designed to be successful as a business with a much smaller user base because advertising requires an immense number of people to actually mm-hmm. sell ads meaningfully. For us, a student pays a tutor and a portion of that fee is collected by our company as a commission. So it's a percentage mm-hmm. process and that's a pretty standard model for us. But that just means with a few hundred 
to a few thousand active tutors making their living off of our platform, that's enough income for us also to be a sustainable business. So we want to introduce that. Yeah. You know, right now our, we are released and we're in more or less a beta testing phase. We're bringing customers on board. In the fall, we'll build out our payment platform and start making a serious move to become revenue positive. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, awesome. Very interesting. So just, I know we touched on a lot of points, but if, if you were to summarize for, say, a startup or even it could be an existing business looking to build a product, what are the key points that you need to look at or approach when building a new product? Could you give us a brief summary of you? So the most important stuff happens first, I would say. Okay. And that would be like understanding the market itself, figuring out clearly what problem exists and that you would like to solve. So then coming up with a solution to solve that problem that is usable by customers. So starting a new company or introducing a new product, I would say the most valuable thing is really to be in a market that you understand and probably have been a part of for a while. It's really tough, and I've advised this with folks that I've met with over the years, that if you're not really a part of that community, you say, oh, I can build a platform that serves these other people over there. If you're not really a part of that, you probably don't understand their needs enough okay. that that's going to be something you can really succeed in. It needs to be something that you have been grappling with or that you have been working in for a long time. And then from there, that does also mean you're naturally going to be connected with other people who are working on those same issues or who need to solve those same problems. So the network that you have around you already, you can leverage to start understanding a larger set of that market, not just your own personal experience, but many others' experience, to validate that there is, in fact, room for something new to be built there. And then once you've participated and understood the market's needs and the problems, then you can start designing your solution to those problems. Okay. I would say that that should be done in intense collaboration with others who are in that community who are facing those problems. You know, it's very easy as an individual to get too deep into the weeds and to try to solve okay. something that turns out there's like one customer in the world and that's yourself. <laughs> you know, so, um, so to understand like the yeah. broader need and to fit something that's not just designed for you, but designed for these other folks as well. And then from there, like the next step is really just to start building proofs of concept and getting folks to test those out and sort of work with them in their day to day. And then it just kind of builds on top of that foundation. Fantastic. And, you know, there's, there's obviously there's a lot of competition in the marketplace these days and products are becoming replicated very quickly and very easily. One, how do you keep ahead of your competition? And I suppose two, kind of silver linked is how do you make your product stand out above other products? In your yeah. You know, not being afraid to change things is really important as well. Like you can't rest on the laurels of previous success because expectations are changing all the time. We see this in the introduction of new social media platforms. Every few years there's a new platform and it's, it addresses things in a slightly different way. Mostly they have come into existence to solve kind of narrower and narrower problems, right? The earlier social media platforms, I suppose Facebook is like very general purpose. Yes. And um, then Instagram came and it was really just focused on sharing photos and Twitter focused on very short snippets of text. And now things like TikTok that are like just short videos. So they've all sort of found like there are all these niches. And if you focus really intensely on a small niche, then you can do something a little bit different. 
there's also the network effect. When a company mm. becomes very dominant in a social media platform, in a news media, or in many different areas, search engines included, it's really difficult for someone to come in and disrupt the incumbent. Everyone around the world has their expectation. If you want to search the web, it's called Google. Yes, there's many other search engines, and many of them are technically sophisticated, but Google has the mind share, and it has the investment of an entire ecosystem of other products built around it. So that's, that's what Warren Buffett would call building a strong moat to protect your company. Network effects make that so incredibly powerful. We saw Google invest probably billions of dollars trying to make a competitor to Facebook. And when Google Plus came out, it was considered by most people to be a technically better product. But the effort of convincing 1 billion people to switch from one platform to another, even if that effort's not significant, it's nearly impossible to accomplish. So building a committed base of users around your platform, once they've invested their time and energy in it, once they've built part of their network on top of that platform, dislodging that product is, is so incredibly difficult. But that's one of the things that every startup attempts to do. Yeah, really, really good points there. And in terms of, so EdTech, I mean, you, you touched on it briefly and on your own company, the, the Evolve Technologies. So is it focused on courses just in the New York area or do you go further afield? So EvolveEd is focused really on building out a global platform. Okay. We're pretty idealistic about education and the opportunities it can bring to people everywhere in the world. So looking at kind of growing up myself in some remote areas and sort of the opportunity cost, like the missed opportunities of education that were unavailable in the places that I lived. And for many people, it's much more severe. There are people in parts of the U.S., remote rural locations that really don't have access to good education, towards new ideas, to, towards information in general. That's true in, in some rural places. That's true in some very impoverished urban areas of the U.S. alone. But then if you look at that on a global scale, it's much more extreme. There are countries where opportunities are very few and far between. But the people there are just as smart as everywhere else. And they learn interesting skills that they can share with others. So we want to make it possible for them to actually connect with this larger world and share their skills and also learn. So it's an opportunity for Americans to teach people in Nigeria, Indians to teach people in Canada, European, South America, every combination you can imagine. And we see like a great deal of opportunity there. Even folks who don't have a lot of academic skills. Like we're not focused on academic skills at all. We're focused on many, many different things. Cooking and cultural sharing. Mm -hmm. Languages are a great one because right. if you're a native speaker, you could be a refugee from Syria. And this is an organization that actually that we've worked with. Refugees from Syria who have moved to Europe to escape the civil war there, native speakers of Arabic. There are college mm -hmm. students in the US who are learning Arabic there's not a lot of opportunities for them to interact with native speakers. So an organization we work with actually connects them with refugees in Europe who are native speakers from Syria and other countries. And that gives them both excellent opportunities. The students get the opportunity to actually speak and practice listening with a native speaker. And the native speakers can produce some cash income, which in a refugee situation is really difficult in a lot of cases. Fantastic. And how, how would you say your product then would stand out above other products in the marketplace? We're focused on doing things a little bit differently. A lot of tutor platforms 
try to facilitate in-person meetings. And there's a lot of value in that. But that hasn't been our focus. Our focus has been doing it entirely online. And most platforms are also quite focused on academic subjects, teaching for college entrance exams. SAT tutoring is probably the largest single like tutoring that you'll find in the United States. We do want to provide support for that, but that hasn't been our initial focus. Our initial focus has been on these other wide range of skills and interests. We've got people on our platform who are teaching mountain biking and Mm -hmm. people who are teaching vegetable gardening. And we see a lot of value in this diverse range of different options for for teaching and for learning. Very cool. Fantastic. So what does the future hold for you and for your company? We are looking forward to this fall, actually. We've got a couple of partnerships coming up in the near term with Vassar College and with some other organizations in the New York City metropolitan area, but also across the country, some up in Canada, Vancouver, and elsewhere. We're looking to expand. We've seen some promising opportunities in Nigeria, in fact, where there's a growing, a rather quickly growing population of technical, educated, English-speaking people who we think would be really good to interact with the students we're bringing on board in the U.S. and not only to teach those specific skills, you know, hard sciences and traditional academic skills, but also the cultural interchange is something that we're really interested to see. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds very cool. So if, if, someone, ben, if, they want, if somebody wants to reach out to you or learn more about you and your company, what's the best way to get in contact? Well, we'd love everyone to visit our website, which is uh, www.evolved.live. EvolveEd is spelled like evolved, E-V-O-L-V-E-D. Uh, and you can also email me directly, ben at evolveed.live. I'd really be interested in hearing from anyone who wants to check. Fantastic. Well, what I want to do is I'll put that information in the notes of the podcast. And um, listen, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise, Ken. I really appreciate you reaching out. And this was a fun conversation. Mm-hmm.